Amen. All right, well, we're continuing in um, the Thessalonian epistles. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and this morning I'll read verse 13 through 16. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. The Thessalonian believers who received this letter were waiting for Christ's return from heaven, and they understood that expectation of Christ to return to be a big part of their Christian life. They were really clear on that from the start, from the moment that they received uh, the gospel, And that was a strength to their church, that they were waiting for Christ's return and uh, expecting it very vividly, uh, expecting it It was very real to them, their expectation for Christ uh, to return. And in that way, they're an example to us. Are you expecting Christ to return? Is that a big part of your Christian life? Is that one of the the first things you might mention about the Christian life is is, uh, waiting for uh, Christ's return? Well, the Thessalonians were very clear on that. Um, it was a strength to them. But as time passed, Satan began to cast doubt on their own salvation. And they began to doubt, maybe in subtle ways, uh, am I really saved? Am I really saved? And so it was as if uh, termites sent by Satan began to eat out the inside of one of their greatest strengths and hollow it out of this uh, uh, very vivid expectation of Christ's uh, return. And so as often happens, uh, Satan was able to get a foothold and transform one of their greatest strengths into one of their greatest weaknesses, transform what was an asset to them as a church into uh, a liability so that their vivid expectation of Christ's return was not a source of confident hope that was galvanizing them to face and tackle all the responsibilities that they had in the present age, but rather their expectation with that kind of lack of assurance, um, expectation of Christ's return became a source of dread, a source of nervousness, uh, a source of anxiety, a source of uncertainty that became all-consuming and paralyzed them, anesthetized them to all their responsibilities it, in the current time, it became a hindrance to them in uh, the present uh, time. So in order to help the Thessalonians to have assurance of salvation, to restore their assurance of salvation, uh, Paul tells the Thessalonians at the beginning of this epistle that he thanks God in prayer, and he thanks them God all the time for their true salvation. He's thankful for their true salvation. He's able to see maybe something that they're not quite able to see, which is their own uh, salvation, and he's able to thank God for that. Now, that's not unusual for Paul to give a thanksgiving at the beginning of any of his epistles, and it's it's actually not unusual for him to uh, thank God for the salvation of those that he's uh, writing to. 
What is unusual in this first epistle of Thessalonians is that Paul follows up his thanksgiving for the Thessalonian salvation with a fairly long explanation of why he can be so certain um, that they're saved. So certain that he can thank God for their salvation boldly and thank God uh, for their salvation often. Something that they have come to doubt, which is the genuineness of their uh, salvation. And so Paul gives an explanation why he's so bold as to thank God for this and to not think he's wasting his time in, in thanking the Lord for the, the, the uh, true salvation of the, the Thessalonians. So as part of this discussion, as it continues into chapter two, Paul starts with what they know to be true, which what, what they didn't dispute at all. And that is how the gospel came to them in their town in uh, Thessalonica. And they knew this to be true because they knew Paul and Silas and Timothy that the gospel did not come to them as a mind trick. Um, it didn't come to them as a ruse. Paul and Silas and Timothy almost got out of the way for the Lord to speak through them. And there was no uh, ambition, self-seeking, no angling for advantage, no manipulating or, or using uh, uh, tricks to, to uh, manipulate the Thessalonians into accepting the gospel. These heralds of the gospel simply let God speak through them and speak the true gospel through, through them. And the Thessalonians knew that. And that's why when he uh, asserts all this in kind of a long discussion in chapter 2, Verse 1 through 12, that's the passage right before the one that we're looking at. Uh, about five times he says, you know this, you know this. You know that we didn't come with flattering speech. You know that we didn't come with trickery. You know that we didn't come with guile. We know you didn't, we didn't trick anybody into uh, accepting what uh, we were saying. We didn't use what we were saying for our own advantage, but we spoke to you the true gospel of God. And uh, we gave ourselves to you along with the gospel uh, as well. So uh, Paul says, that's how the gospel came to you. It didn't come through uh, us uh, manipulating you in some way. It was, it was God himself offering uh, the gospel to you. And let me remind you of something else also, he says, when we get to our passage now. Uh, and that is not just how it was given, but how it was received. You received the gospel at that time. Not as us speaking to you, but as God speaking to you. And so he was. He was speaking to you. And so he is because God caused you to be his own child through the gospel. And uh, you need to know that you are uh, God's child. Paul tells the Thessalonians God was at work in the preaching of the gospel in Thessalonica, as you know. They already knew this. They didn't dispute that through um, Paul and his uh, gospel worker, uh, helpers. So God was at work in the preaching of the gospel. God was also at work in the receiving of the gospel. And that's kind of the point he's getting to when he gets to, uh, our passage, he was at work in the receiving of the gospel to make you his child. And so Paul is arguing here. It's only right for us to be thankful to the Lord for your true salvation. And he's teaching them by saying that it's only right for you not to doubt that you're saved and to know that you are a true child uh, of God. Well, what Paul did for the Thessalonians uh, in this uh, paragraph, in this passage that we're looking uh, at, passage that we read, is what the Holy Spirit desires to do for you, and that is to strengthen your assurance of salvation. If you belong to Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, you need to know it. 
You need to know it in order to live uh, the Christian life. So this morning, let me give you three encouragements to you so that you might be strengthened in your assurance of salvation and know for certain that you are a child of God. And so first, I want to take you to ground zero, which is the source of the sureness of your salvation. That's verse 13. Then we'll look at uh, a second point, a clue to the sureness of your salvation. That's verse 14. And then third, uh, kind of an unexpected way to take the measure of the sureness of your salvation. And that's in verse 15 and 16. So that's where I'm going uh, this morning. First, the first encouragement to strengthen your assurance of salvation is actually by far the most important of the three. Uh, the first point, because it goes right to the source, to the source of uh, the sh- assurance of your of your salvation, which is God's word. Verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. Notice about this verse that uh, Paul is still on Thanksgiving for their salvation. Um, He he started that, I think, back in chapter 1 and uh, verse 2. It's kind of typical for his letters to give thanks for his readers, express just his thankful heart, give them a report of what he prays about, and he's thankful for them. And he wants them to know that. But he's still on it. He's still on it. He's he's still... um, uh, uh, expanding on, uh, his thankfulness and the reason why he can be thankful for their, uh, salvation. And so, uh, usually he gives thanks and moves on, but he's stuck there. He's stuck here on Thanksgiving. He's justifying his Thanksgiving for their salvation. He's giving reason for it in order to give them, uh, assurance. And so he says, uh, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, and, and he, he starts there. He takes them back to the point when they received the word of God, which they heard from Paul and Silas and uh, Timothy, which they did. No one can doubt uh, that what Paul and Silas and Timothy were saying when they came into the city of, uh, of Thessalonica was what the Thessalonians were receiving. No one uh, can doubt that. Paul and Silas and Timothy didn't doubt that. Outside observers, even those who heard about it in other uh, places, didn't doubt that. Even the enemies, even even the Thessalonians themselves couldn't doubt that. That what Paul and Silas and Timothy were saying was received by these uh, Thessalonian uh, believers. But how was it received? How was it received? Uh, was it received as the word of men? Was it received as, well, I'm accepting this because it's what Paul and Silas and Timothy are saying, and I'm so impressed with these three guys that have shown up uh, in the town, or was it received as the word of God? Well, I've heard it from these three people, but it's it's God speaking to me. Well, what does Paul say? We constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. How? Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And this is the center. This is the source. This is why I've called it in the outline, the ground zero for assurance of salvation. All the verses leading up to this, uh, verse uh, 13, uh, and, the, and that they accepted the word of God, not as the word of men, but as, as what it really is, the word of God. 
all the verses leading up to this were to get them to this point. All the verses following that the rest of my outline will be based on are, are just to clarify this point and to lead them back to this point. Because uh, this is where assurance comes from, because this is where salvation comes from. It comes from the word of God. It comes simply from God's word. This is how God makes you his child, is by his word. And it's the only way that God makes you his child. There's no other way that God makes you his child is through his word. That's taught here in this uh, scripture. That's uh, Paul's point. This is a wonderful uh, verse of scripture, one well worth uh, memorizing. It's taught all over scripture that this is the way God causes the new birth. This is the way God makes you his child forever is always through his uh, word. Um, let me just give you uh, a, a sampling of scriptures familiar to you uh, that teach this uh, same same thing. Old Testament and New, starting at Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And so the word of the Lord brings about fruit. It accomplishes his uh, purpose. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intention of the heart. That's the word of God that pierces more deeply than anything else uh, possibly could. It's his word that is living and active and powerful uh, to do that. Uh, James 1, uh, 21. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be kind of a first fruits among his creatures. And so this speaks of the new birth and how is it caused? By his word. And then similarly, first Peter chapter one, verse 23, for you've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. And so God causes you to be his child through his word. That's why Paul reminds the Thessalonians of how they reacted to his word. That's how they became a, a child uh, of God. That's what is, uh, restores their assurance of uh, salvation. And so God uses this tool, so to speak, his own word, his own voice, to uh, accomplish salvation for uh, his people. It's, uh, there's a saying, a man is as good as his word. In other words, you can evaluate a man based on what he says and, and maybe especially based on how he keeps his word, whether he's, he's good uh, to his word to do what he uh, says that he has promised. And God has seen to fit to stoop down to be treated by us like a man. That is to be known truly just by his word alone. Now, this is the God that has created all things. He's made a vast display of uh, his character. Psalm chapter 19, verse uh, 1 says that the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work uh, of his hands. And so all creation is uh, testifying of uh, God. And yet man is so proud that even the wisest of men, even the best of men, find through that testimony of God, they find a sort of God who's powerful but remote and distant, a, a God that you sort of respect, but you'd kind of like to stay out of his way and kind of carve out an existence uh, on your own. 
no man finds anywhere near the true character of God that you can make your boast at all times, that you can make nearness to him to be your strength at all times. You don't find him through creation, even though it's a, it's a magnificent display of his power. The only way that you can find God in that way, the true saving way, is through this message in a bottle, through this word of God, the humble word of God. And God has seen fit. In fact, it's kind of, you might say almost his his laugh uh, of God to seen fit to only show himself to proud man uh, in that way through his word. First uh, Corinthians one uh, verse uh, twenty one says, "For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe." And so He saves through His word. He saves always through uh, his own his own word. Uh, Paul calls it here as he gives thanks for the salvation of the Thessalonians and traces it back to uh, its source. He says that you received the word of God, which you heard from us, and you accepted it not as the word of men, not as our message, but for what it really is, the word of God. And he uses, he uses the term word, um, logos, because it's a, it's a message uh, from God. But he's been calling it gospel up to this point. He called it that in verse uh, 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit. He called it that in chapter 2, uh, verse 2, uh, verse 4 as well, uh, verse 5, uh, verse 8, and uh, verse 9. He's been calling it the gospel of God. So it's not just the word of God, but it's good news uh, that came to you. He's been calling it the gospel. He hasn't changed the subject when he calls it God's word. And you received the word of God, which you heard from us, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. It's the, it's the word of good news by which God makes you his child. It's a word. It's a message. It's good news better than you could ever imagine because it's a word of his love. And it's a word of his love for the most undeserving. It's a word of forgiveness of sins given freely to you, a word that tells you that God is going to guide you and be with you and be faithful to you uh, to the end and then bestow on you in the end an inheritance for all eternity, uh, an inheritance that you could, cannot even dare to imagine, don't even have the capacity to imagine how wonderful uh, that it is. And it's through that word, the word of the gospel, the word of uh, good news by which he changes us by which he transforms us. It's that message of the gospel that uh, transforms us. In fact, it's only the message of the gospel that uh, transforms us and changes us into the same image, into the same kind of love, so that our character matches that uh, character of God. It's only this word that can do that, the word of uh, the gospel. In fact, if you ever try to be changed by meeting God or meeting his word, uh, his message with some sense of deserving, you fall flat on your face because you find you've been doing it in your own strength. And so then you need to be reminded again what kind of word God uses to make a change in you. It's a word of grace. And that's what Paul says. It's the last thing that he puts here in this verse uh, about the kind of word that they received. You received the word of God, which you heard from us when you did. You accepted it. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And then he adds this is a wonderful thing that he adds, which also performs its work 
in you who believe. And so this message of God that you can't hear any, anything like it anywhere else uh, is what God used to make you his child. It's also what he uses to transform you into his image. It performs its work in you who believe, and it's a message of grace. And what is it that unlocks the power of this word in you so that it performs its work in you? Well, Paul says it. The word of God which performs its work in you who believe. It's faith that unlocks the power, all the power that God has invested into this word of uh, the gospel. That is, it's simply taking God at his word. Saying, God didn't lie to me when he gave me the gospel. Something you, you might overlook. You might think the key uh, to Christian living is something a, a lot more complicated than that. It's simply taking God at his word. And that's why it's easy to lose sight of. Satan can distract us from it very easily. And then we begin losing our assurance of salvation. We begin floundering in uh, the Christian faith and need to be called back to the message of good news by which God restores to us the joy of our salvation, by which he restores to us the power of our salvation that uh, begins to perform its work in us, by which God restores to us that his character is our boast, and by which we can live uh, the Christian life with power and uh, with love. And that power is unlocked by believing it and believing that it's for you, believing that it's for you. And so it's the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe faith unlocks the power of God's word. I think that's why the Lord Jesus spoke so much about faith to his disciples. And he spoke to them about faith when they struggled, which they did. They struggled uh, often and in situations where it might have seemed like to the observer that the problem with his disciples was that they were lacking in courage or they were lacking in understanding or they were lacking in endurance. The Lord would rebuke them and he didn't say, oh, you have little courage or little understanding or little endurance. But he would say to them, he said this on, on many occasions, oh, you have little faith. Oh, you have little faith. It's faith that unlocks the power of uh, God doing his work in you to transform you into his image, causing you to walk in his ways, causing you to have courage, causing you to have understanding, causing you to have endurance. That's why the Lord told them uh, on a number of other occasions that if you have faith, as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be lifted up and planted in uh, the heart of the sea. That's why he told uh, Peter, when uh, Peter was about to deny the Lord uh, three times, he said, behold, Satan is demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And after you've turned, uh, minister to your uh, brothers. Uh, again, but he, he said, I've prayed for you, Peter. He didn't say, oh, I prayed for you, Peter, that your, your courage wouldn't fail or that your uh, understanding and your great insight into all the ways of God would not fail. No, he says uh, to Peter, I, I prayed when, when Satan has taken just about everything away from you that you, th- he, you think he could take away from you, I pray that your faith would not fail. If you trust in me, if you trust in my word uh, to you, uh, you'll be able to be turned. You'll be able to be turned back Get everything that you had and more and be a blessing to your brothers uh, as well. It's the nature of faith, not because of anything so special about faith, but because of the nature of God's word and how much he's put into his word. That it's the thing that he uses to make you his child. It's the thing that he uses to uh, do his work of transformation in you who uh, believe. And so what about you, Christian? The Thessalonians were struggling with assurance of salvation. 
Satan had discouraged them. He had put in their heart this thought, well, maybe I'm not God's child. I know he has other children that he's saving. I'm not sure that I'm God's child. I'm not sure that when Christ returns and when the dust settles, it's going to mean salvation for me. Maybe it's going to mean wrath for me when uh, Christ uh, returns. Uh, if Satan's uh, caused you to doubt that, then there's nothing better for you. Nothing better for you. Not even what's in my second point or my third point uh, for my outline. There's nothing better for you than to go back to ground zero, which is the source of your salvation. It's the source of your assurance uh, as well. It's God's word to you. It's the word of the gospel to you. Or on the other hand, maybe you don't recognize the gospel as the word of God. But maybe you think of it as the word of man. Maybe you think it's just uh, contrived. It's like the other religions of the world. They all have something. And uh, the gospel is uh, that we believe is simply uh, the word, the word of man. If so, you're estranged from God. You stand in the guilt of your sin uh, and you will stand in judgment before a righteous judge alone with all of your sins and perhaps none of them so heinous and repulsive to the judge as despising his message that he sent to you about himself and about his offer of salvation and the just sentence that the judge will pronounce and that you'll experience for all eternity is that you will suffer for all eternity and yet not even then come to the full recompense that your sins deserve for your crime against a holy and a loving uh, God. And so the only way out for you is to abandon all trust in yourself and to put trust in a savior sent from heaven and to a message that tells you the truth about the Savior sent from heaven who suffered and died and rose again to pay the penalty for sinners just like you and who extends his grace uh, to you now in the gospel, but not forever. And so now is the time to come to the Lord and believe and be saved in the only way that any uh, child of God is ever saved by believing in his word. Well, three encouragements this morning to strengthen your assurance of salvation. And uh, the first point, verse 13, takes you back to the source of your salvation, which is the word of God and the gospel uh, of God. Uh, the second encouragement is a clue to the sureness of your salvation, and that's in verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from uh, the Jews. Uh, the clue to assurance of salvation for the Thessalonians, for you uh, as well, is that when the Thessalonians believed, when they believed the word, as, not as the word of men, but as the word of God, it immediately involved them in conflict with their neighbors, with the other Thessalonians, that they had been just like them uh, not before they accepted this word of uh, the gospel. It involved them in a conflict with their neighbors, which they embraced, which they endured, they didn't back down from it. They didn't flinch from it or falter or faint. They didn't splinter apart. They didn't turn against each other uh, from it. And so they endured this uh, conflict. And so uh, Paul brings this up simply as evidence that when the gospel was sown in their heart, it wasn't like the rocky soil, that uh, the persecution came and indicated that it had never really taken root. They had never really been believed, that, that they had kind of believed it in a very superficial way, but not, never truly uh, believed that this word came to them uh, from God. They were not like uh, 
the uh, parable, and I'll read you the verses of it, Matthew 13, verse 20. The one on whom the seed was sown on rocky places, with just a shallow covering of dirt over him. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And that didn't happen to the Thessalonians. So affliction came up, persecution even a mob uh, in the city that seemed out of control came into some of their homes, pulled some of them out, uh, put them before uh, the mob, and they still accepted it as the word of God. And it's an indication that their faith was true. It's not the source of their assurance. It's a help to it. It's a clue to it. That's what I've, I've said. And, and so Paul um, just brings this to buttress uh, what he said before about the word of God coming into their lives and uh, making a, a difference uh, to them. And so he encourages them with the fact that because of this, because of this conflict that uh, the word of God kind of forced them into uh, suddenly and they stood firm, they embraced uh, this conflict. They're part of a, a, a brotherhood of suffering. There's a oneness of a brotherhood of suffering that's worldwide. And so he says to them, for you, he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to encourage them uh, to assurance of salvation. For you, brethren, became, and here's how he puts it, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your countrymen, even as they did from uh, the Jews. So he reminds them they're part of this larger fellowship, why does he pin it down in this place so far away from the Thessalonians in the corner of the world, in their minds probably, especially before they heard the gospel? Judea, Jerusalem. Uh, you became involved in the same kind of conflict as uh, the believers that are in this faraway place that probably none of you have been to, uh, Jerusalem. And you became like them. You became imitators of them. Why does he connect this uh, brotherhood to the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Well, perhaps a couple of reasons. Um, the church in Judea or the church in Jerusalem is where the gospel first went out. And uh, so the church in Jerusalem, you might say among the other churches, we prayed for a couple of sister churches. We could have prayed for a number of other churches. We just prayed for the ones that are closest uh, to us. But uh, the churches are, are equals to one another. And uh, sisters, that's a good good way of putting it. And um, uh, But the church in Jerusalem was first, and so maybe it's first among equals, first in time, you might say. It's the oldest uh, church. The gospel was to go out uh, first from Jerusalem, and then all Judea and Samaria, and then even to the uttermost part of the earth. And so he's saying, you're joined with all the other Christians. Yes, you're even joined with the first church the one in Jerusalem, the churches that are in uh, Judea, and they've experienced much persecution, and you're experiencing persecution of uh, the same kind. Later, when Paul was uh, gathering a collection from the Gentile churches for relief for the poor saints that were in uh, Jerusalem, uh, he said uh, to them, uh, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. And so there's a sense in which the spiritual blessing of the gospel spread out from Jerusalem first. And so he encourages them by saying, you're involved in the same kind of conflict as where this all started, as uh, the churches in Judea and in uh, Jerusalem. But I think perhaps there's another reason, too, why Paul connects the struggle that they experienced in Thessalonica to the struggle that uh, this, that other churches were having with their neighbors 
and their countrymen uh, persecuting the church in uh, faraway uh, Judea. And uh, perhaps it's this, perhaps it's this or something like this, uh, that perhaps part of the, the doubt that Satan was planting in the minds of the Thessalonians was to say, you know, the conflict you're experiencing in Thessalonica with your neighbors uh, is not really persecution. Uh, we read about the mob and the way it the way it formed in uh, Acts chapter 17, and it says there the the people who started out that mob and opposed the churches in Thessalonica were motivated by jealousy. They were synagogue leaders, and they were, lost a lot of their people to the the uh, the, the new churches uh, that were planted and. Uh, then those churches gained a ton of other people from Thessalonica. They were motivated by jealousy. And then they, they, uh, the Thessalonian believers were painted by their opponents as rebelling against uh, Caesar and fomenting unrest among the Thessalonians, which uh, wasn't even true, uh, but was uh, uh, put in, the, in that light. And so Paul indicates uh, to them, no, the suffering that you endured, you endured the same suffering. At the hands of your suffering, of your countrymen, even as the churches, uh, in Judea did from, uh, the, the Jews. And so, uh, he's connecting by analogy to a place where maybe the conflict was more clear cut than it was in, uh, Thessalonica. The countrymen of the Jews in, uh, Judea who persecuted the church were the same people that killed the Lord Jesus himself. It's pretty clear why they were persecuting. Uh, the church. They killed the Lord Jesus and they wanted to kill his uh, followers. And so this is actually often the case in scripture is that the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation uh, of people is often like a, a mirror so that where things are experienced truly by the Gentiles, but in a less obvious way, like uh, failure to measure up to God's law. It's true of everyone. But uh, you can see it in the whole history of the nation of Israel very clearly in an obvious way that you can't miss. And it's not to show the Gentiles that they're better than God's chosen nation of Israel. It's to show us what we're like if we'll just look in that mirror and see it clearly. And so perhaps there's something uh, similar here where Paul is uh, pointing uh, the Th- Thessalonians. They've become confused. They've become bogged down in the Christian life. Even this conflict that they're experiencing isn't necessarily showing them and confirming to them that they're a child of God involved in a, a conflict uh, in which the Lord is arrayed against his enemies. He says, well, it's it's the same as what your brothers are experiencing, and your brothers in Jerusalem uh, who are opposing the, the enemies of the Lord, in fact, the very ones that persecuted uh, the Lord. So it's the same with you. If you've experienced any suffering uh, for the sake of Christ, like you're not on the same page, with your neighbor and uh, perhaps they uh, despise you for it. And, and perhaps they say, well, I, I despise you because of something political, you know, so somewhere you are on the political uh, spectrum, but it, it's actually because you're a Christian. It's actually because you're a Christian that you're not walking uh, in step uh, with them. Then you also need to hear that it's, it's your acceptance of the gospel that's involved you in this struggle this conflict. When you embrace that uh, conflict, it's it's an evidence, it's a proof, it's a clue uh, that you are also a child of God and you're to take it as a clue uh, to the sureness of your salvation. So three encouragements to strengthen your assurance of uh, salvation. The first takes you back to the source of salvation. Verse uh, 13 
the word of God itself, the gospel of God itself. You can't, you can't do any better than that. And going back to the source of the assurance of salvation. Second is a clue to the sureness of your salvation. And that is, that is the persecution that the Thessalonians, they, they experienced it because they had embraced the gospel as the word of God and it should confirm that you're a child of God. And then the third point, I, I put it this way, it's an unexpected way to take the measure of the sureness of your salvation. And that comes in verse 15 and 16. So Paul mentions the Jews who persecuted the church in Judea, and he says this about them. They both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to uh, the uttermost. Now, Paul seems to go off on a tangent, you might say. He mentions that this faraway place and the opponents of Christians in uh, Jerusalem, and then he seems to almost kind of go on a tirade against them and say, well, they, and, and even just sort of vent frustration. They killed the Lord Jesus. They've killed all the prophets. They've driven us out. They're not pleasing to the Lord. They try to hinder us from speaking to Gentiles. Uh, that they may be saved. And here's their condemnation is that they always fill up the measure of their sins and wrath has come upon them to uh, the uttermost. Uh, Paul's kind of, his, his style in scripture, he's kind of an exuberant writer where one thought propels him to the next uh, thought. And that's certainly true of uh, Paul. But it's also true that when you step back from what Paul's written, there's a, there's a pattern, there's a plan. Uh, to it as well. He doesn't write haphazardly. And so I think what he wrote here is not just to, to vent his spleen about uh, these opponents in, in Jerusalem that he's uh, so frustrated with, but it's actually for the sake of uh, the Thessalonians. And this is how the Bible works, is that the light of the gospel is set against the darkest backdrop. And this is very dark uh, indeed, uh, the, uh, of those who have opposed Christ in his chosen nation of, uh, Israel. Uh, the, these Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. It sounds like what Stephen said, uh, when he accused those same people in Jerusalem, those same people who had, uh, killed, uh, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. He said, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecuted? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers. And murderers, you have now become. And Paul says something similar here about these same people, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these leaders in uh, Jerusalem, who both killed the Lord Jesus and his prophets and drove us out uh, as well. The um, uh, Thessalonians wouldn't have known much about him, except what they heard through Silas. Silas was from the church in Jerusalem. That's clear from Acts Paul wasn't from this church and hadn't spent time there. Actually, he had spent time there as a persecutor of the church in Jerusalem on the other side of this conflict before the Lord called him to uh, salvation. But he um, he condemns them for this. He says, they're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. So they've made themselves an obstacle to salvation. It sounds similar to what the Lord said to uh, the Pharisees when he... Uh, 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 spoke uh, to them and said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. 
For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. That's the same people. That's the leaders in Jerusalem. He said that in the temple uh, to them after he had uh, silenced them in uh, all the ways they were seeking to trap him in his words. He silenced them and he told them what he thought of them and he denounced them in that way. And so Paul is uh, denouncing them for the same thing of hindering those uh, from being uh, saved. And so uh, with this result, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And it was, uh, he speaks of them as reaching sort of the apex of evil, of wrath coming upon them to the uttermost. It was God's plans for, for the Jewish people to reach the extreme point of sinfulness. And what can be more sinful than to, for God himself to come, for his son to come and for them to put him on a cross, for them to betray him and murder him and uh, to crucify him. And so the utmost point of sin has been reached by God's uh, chosen people. Their iniquity is full, kind of like the Amorite Lord told Abraham the iniquity of the Amorite nation is not yet full. There's more wickedness for them to do before the wrath falls. But for the Jewish nation, they've reached it. He says they've reached that point. And so now when they're sinning, they're always filling up the measure full because it's full for them. They've reached the utmost uh, point. And now wrath has come upon them to uh, the utmost. And he's speaking of end times wrath. Uh, that's coming upon the nation of Israel for their sin against uh, uh, the Lord. And so he's, again, he's taking the conflict in Thessalonica and he's, he's transferring it by analogy to the one in Jerusalem and saying it's the same and saying, well, if you can't see it quite as clearly in your city of Thessalonica, look in uh, Judea by uh, analogy because it's the, the same one and it's your opponents that when the wrath of God comes from heaven, it's going to fall upon him. And when his wrath falls, it's going to fall upon them and not on you. That's where the line of division has been drawn. And so here's the strange measure of the sureness of uh, your salvation. You're involved in this struggle in Thessalonica with the enemies of Christ. And to the extent that you can be sure of their destruction, those who are arrayed against Christ, to the same extent you can be sure of your salvation. So it's kind of a strange uh, measure. They've sinned to the utmost. They've uh, the the enemies of Christ, and it's true in Judea. It's true also in Thessalonica as well. And it's kind of a strange reason to buttress their assurance of salvation. Well, I think that's the main thrust of what he's telling them by telling them about these opponents of Christ, where it's most clearly seen, and where the wrath that's coming from heaven is coming for these uh, kinds of uh, opponents, and not for the Thessalonian uh, believers. But in a different way, and I'll just add this, I think it's just hinted at here, it's not said. In a different way, this is only half the story for Israel, for the nation of uh, Israel. Yes, wrath is going to fall on them, but if you read what Paul writes, he hadn't written it yet, but he believed it. In uh, Romans chapter 9 through uh, 11, uh, when the wrath falls against God's chosen nation of Israel, well-deserved wrath uh, for them, Two-thirds of them be destroyed, it says, in Jerusalem, and a third of them are going to be brought through and purified and saved. And then the nation of Israel is going to be exalted to higher than it's ever been uh, before, and God is going to fulfill all of his promises to them. It was prophesied for them as early as even in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants 
when he sees that their strength is gone, when they've reached the utmost of their uh, sinfulness. And so in, a, in, a, in another way, perhaps just hinted at it, it's an encouragement for the Thessalonians uh, to take heart for uh, assurance of salvation. And that is that when sin has done its worst, when all hope is gone, when it's gone to the utmost, that's when the gospel shines the brightest. That's when Christ, who's the resurrection and the life, uh, does his work through the gospel of uh, saving. We're coming in these epistles to uh, teaching about the end times. I think I keep introducing that as as we uh, come to each of these uh, passages. When we get to chapter, and that's why I selected First and Second Thessalonians. When we get to chapter four, uh, to chapter five, and then Second Thessalonians chapter one, chapter two, and uh, chapter three, it's going to especially talk about the teaching of end times uh, in the uh, Thessalonian uh, epistles. And uh, I hope to study that with you, uh, the end times, with with uh, great benefit. But in order to benefit from it, you need to know with assurance that you're a child of God, that you're truly saved. Before you study anything about eschatology and the order of events, you need to know that the wrath that's coming, because that's what's coming uh, in, in the end times and surrounding the return of Christ, is not wrath for you. And when Christ comes the second time, not coming as a savior, coming as a warrior and coming uh, with wrath and coming with justice that his wrath is not uh, for you. Do you know that? Do you know that for yourself? Are you sure that you are a child of God? You should be. And if you're not, you need to see it first and foremost in the gospel, in the gospel of his love. Uh, it's written for you in scripture. It's preached for you from the pulpit. It's shown to you at uh, the Lord's table, uh, that not only, it's, it's shown here in a wonderful way, not only that God, Christ promises to save, but he promises to save you. And uh, the Lord's table is a, a place where it's as if Christ himself just says, um, we're not to receive the gospel as the word of men, but the word of God in the same way these symbols that are put in your hand, put in your mouth, are to be given to you not as a symbol of man that we're giving you at Trinity Bible Church, but as from Christ himself uh, to you. And it's it's to be received in faith that his body truly is uh, for you. So you're to see it first in the gospel and then to be helped also by the thought that you're involved in a great conflict, a cosmic conflict. And the battle lines have been drawn. They're drawn according to the gospel. They're drawn according to who receives the gospel. And it's those very battle lines that are going to be delineated in the end times when the wrath is poured out on those who don't accept the gospel and uh, salvation is appears and salvation is made uh, manifest and uh, obvious for all those who accept uh, the gospel. It's only then, knowing you're a child of God, when looking to the future will do what it's supposed to do for you, and that is to cause you to look to the presence with boldness, to hold the battle line now. And uh, so we'll get to the teaching in the future, about the future, about the end times in due time, uh, Lord willing. But you're to know for certain the sureness of your salvation now by taking refuge in and by resting in God's word to you now. That it's not the word of man, but for what it really is, it's the word of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a word of forgiveness. It's a word of release from sins. Uh, it's a word of uh, inheritance granted to those who uh, deserve so little that 
what we contribute is offensive uh, to you. And yet you've sent your son to die on the cross, to rise again from the dead. And when he comes again with wrath against his enemies or wrath against those who so richly deserve, there will be none for us. We thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We pray that we might uh, count ourselves uh, in Christ, that we might abide in him, and that we might be changed by his resurrection power and by his love. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.